Hello, and welcome to Storytelling Animals, a green new podcast of climate, ecology, and animal justice. I'm your host, Dayton Martindale, and today my guest is Hannah Seo. She is an environmental journalist um, and the author of two recent uh, short pieces for The Guardian um, in their new series, Extinction Obituaries. Um, so basically, The Guardian has started running um, a bunch of obituary type pieces for uh, species that have semi-recently gone extinct. Um, and Hannah wrote two of the first three in the series, um, covering two creatures, the Christmas Island forest skink and the Bramble K Melomis. Um, so I know in a lot of episodes of this podcast, we talk with book authors and, you know, cover a wide range of ground, kind of often from a, you know, 100 foot view. Uh, this was kind of a nice chance to zoom in on two particular animals, um, you know, what uh, negative pressures they faced, how they went extinct, um, and, you know, what that was like for the scientists and others who who watched them go extinct and, and raise the warning um, and, you know, didn't see any good come of it. Um, I wanted to do a quick update on the Storytelling Animals Book Club. Um, thank you to everyone who came out for our discussion of N.K. Jemisin's The Fifth Season, a fantasy novel with some climate themes. Um, that was a week ago last Tuesday, and that was our biggest turnout yet for the book club. Um, so, yeah, if you're interested in joining, our next couple meetings are Tuesday, June 28th, to discuss Entangled Life, How Fungi Make Our Worlds, Change Our Minds, and Shape Our Futures by Merlin Sheldrake. Um, after that is July 26th, also a Tuesday, uh, to discuss the ministry for the future by past podcast guest, uh, Kim Stanley Robinson. That's a, a novel about kind of the, a vision of how over the next few decades, uh, humanity might confront climate change. Um, and then another nonfiction book on Tuesday, August 23rd, as long as grass grows, um, the indigenous fight for environmental justice from colonization to standing rock. And that's by Dina Giglio Whitaker. Um, if you're interested in joining that book club, there's more information on my website. That's DaytonMartindale.com slash book hyphen club. Um, I'll also put that link in the episode description. Um, basically, the short version is you can get a free trial of the book club uh, by joining my free weekly newsletter or you can join permanently by supporting the podcast on Patreon at the uh, $7 a month or higher tier. Um, a quick note on that Patreon. Uh, <laughs> I got an email recently from a publisher um, asking if I'd be interested in interviewing one of their authors. Um, and she said to to you and your team at Storytelling Animals. Um, and there's not really a team. Um, my my brother, Kyle Martindale, um, made the logo, which I'm extremely grateful for. Uh, I love the design. Um, but other than that, the team is uh, you, the people who listen, the people who subscribe to the newsletter, and in particular, the people who um, support this podcast on Patreon by giving just a few bucks a month um, to basically allow me to justify uh, continuing to do this and put a lot of my time into it. Um, so if you would be willing to, um, also chip in a few bucks a month at my Patreon page, patreon.com slash storytelling pod, um, I'd be really grateful. Um, and yeah, it would allow me again to really think about 
doing this podcast long term, um, investing more into it, getting you know better, better software and and such. Um, and yeah, the you also get some perks too. You get early access to episodes um, at. And like I said, at certain tiers, you can get book club membership. Um, and also a new perk, uh, announced for the first time. Well, it was in my newsletter last week, but announced publicly for the first time right now. Um, you can ask me anything, uh, and I'll do a future episode where I answer your questions. And those questions could be, you know, oh, I liked your interview with Kim Stanley Robinson. Like, what books by him should I read? Um, and that is a question that someone has asked me. Um, or it can be, you know, about climate change. It can be, you know, a scientific question you have. It can be, you know, a question for me, like, why, how did you start getting interested in climate change? Or why did you go vegan or something like that? Um, or it can be like a more policy question about, you know, an environmental issue or, or whatever. Um, so yeah, Patreon supporters can submit questions to me. And I will answer those questions in a future episode. And hopefully that will be great. So, yeah. But today, I'm not answering your questions. I'm asking the questions. And I'm asking the questions for Guardian, uh, or for environmental journalist uh, Hannah Seo about her articles for The Guardian. Without further ado, here's the interview. CEO. Hannah, thanks so much for coming on the show. Thanks for having me. Yeah, so um, what I want to talk about today is this new uh, series at The Guardian, which is called Extinction Obituaries, um, which are obituaries of recently extinct animal species. Um, and you you wrote two of the first three uh, obituary, obituaries in this series. Um, so I wanted to, yeah, check in just kind of how you um, how you got involved in, in this project and kind of what your interest was in extinct species. Hmm. So I've done a lot of reporting previously on ecology and uh, specifically about, you know, how human caused climate change kind of impacts the ecology of different habitats. And, um, actually an editor at the guardian, Alistair G, he, uh, reached out to me and, you know, um, pointed out my previous reporting and asked if I was interested in, um, writing these obituaries for him. Um, I think their main impetus was that, you know, obviously these species have been written about before, but what they really wanted was to kind of take the obituary style, you know, where the writing is kind of elegiac and a little bit lyrical, and have that sort of writing style implemented for, um, you know, just to kind of honor these species that have kind of been sacrificed to the changing world and the changing climate. And uh, I was really intrigued by that idea, you know, bringing something, uh, bringing sort of lyrical prose to science reporting. And, um, and so I was super eager to just hop on. You've, you've also written some poetry, is that correct? Yes, I am a poet on the side. I don't often volunteer that because sometimes (laughs) it sounds kind of embarrassing. But I yes, I have published um, over 20 poems um, at this point. Yes. I just bring it up because it may be helpful in that elegiac style of obituary. Um, but the, yeah, so the two species that you wrote about are the Christmas Island forest skink and the Bramble K. Melamis. Uh, maybe let's take them one at a time um, first. What, what even is a skink? I'm not sure everyone knows. 
Yeah, I mean, I didn't really know what a skink was until I started researching for this, um, for this obituary. But a skink is just a type of reptile. It's a type of lizard. It really kind of looks like, if you Google what a skink is, it really looks like the classic generic image of what a what a lizard would be. Um, it's just kind of has like a low, flat, skinny body, long tail, um, and a Christmas Island forest skink specifically is pretty uh, undescript. It's pretty, uh, it's pretty nondescript. It's pretty plain looking. It's just kind of brown with a like slight yellowish hues in its scales, and um, it's reportedly was a very muted gentle creature that really had no super charismatic behavior you know just kind of laid around in the sun did its thing just hung out and like that was its whole life and um yeah it's it's just like a a little lizard (laughs) and uh it's the christmas island forest skink for the geographically challenged among us where is christmas island yeah, so Christmas Island is uh, technically uh, an Australian territory, but it is kind of located just south of Indonesia. Um, so it's kind of like if uh, the northwestern tip of Australia, between that area of Australia and Indonesia is kind of where Christmas Island is, and it's a relatively pretty small island. So one of the thing that is... Um striking and alarming about both really both of the obituaries um is that the declines in population for the skink and the melamis were relatively rapid um a few decades ago you might have looked and seen a bunch of skinks and thought they were doing fine um so how how recently did the skinks begin to really decline and what is our our best guess of what was causing that yeah, so you know, for both of the the species, the Christmas Island uh, Christmas Island forest skinks and the bramble cane melamises, they were super. They were pretty abundant until um, about like the latter half of the twentieth century. So the decline in the skinks um, were really observed in starting in like the seventies, eighties, and then by the nineties, they were still abundant, but you know, still winnowing for sure. It was definitely noticeable that their population numbers were going down. And then by the early 2000s, there were only a few that they could really find. And then by the time that they tried to create a captive breeding program, they could really only find three and capture three. And with the melamises, um, the decline really happened in um, like around the same time, like early 2000s, only about a dozen melamises could be found. And then when they tried to capture them and they once they had created an initiative to create a captive breeding program, by that time in 2009, 10, 11, they couldn't even find a single one. And so these things happened super quickly. And I think that the interesting pattern that you can observe with both of these is that both the melamis and the, a melamis is a rodent. It's about like the size of the palm of, I guess you could hold it in two hands. It's it's a little bit bigger than just single hand size. It's, it's kind of six inches in body. Um, and then there has like a kind of a long tail, but both those melamises and the forest skinks, they were such gentle, unassuming creatures. They really had no, they had no strong, forceful, predatory forces that were challenging them in an survival pressure way. So they 
kind of had an easy life, you know, they they had, they lived in these isolated island habitats, they had very few concerns besides just, like, going about their day and, and, you know, gently, like, chewing on their, 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 um, their vegetative diets, um, you know, hanging out with each other, (laughs) and, uh, because they were not adapt, they had not adapted to any strong forceful survival pressures on any side anything that disrupts their environment is going to really harshly impact them and there's and their um and their behavior and their ability to survive because they're just used to having very gentle um, very gentle circumstances right it's like when you are when your lives are cushioned with such ease and when things have not been changing for thousands and thousands of years on your island you know um, it's, it's, they were, I don't want to say that they were complacent, but, you know, there was no reason to be vigilant or to develop any sort of harsh survival instincts. And so when things like climate change occur or when habitat disruption occur, uh, those really impacted their numbers severely. Mm-hmm. So on Christmas Island, what did begin to change? Yeah, so, um, when researchers and, you know, when people first went to Christmas Island, a lot of it is habitat disruption. So uh, the Christmas Island still to this day has quite a bit of forest area, but there was some clearing um, so that people could build research facilities or um, just like different facilities for humans to kind of live and um, for humans to kind of uh, exist there. uh, There's not a huge population that lives there full time. Like I think at any given time, there's maybe like a dozen researchers and some custodians and whatever. But um, it was really habitat disruption and also the introduction of invasive species. So the forest skinks had basically no natural predators on their island for a while but then when research when other humans came you know to the island to do research or to explore they brought with them things like um snakes uh different birds and those predators and um invasive species like ants and different insects also were um invaded christmas island and uh, the introduction of all of these species really impacted the skinks, whether it's because they competed with the skinks for food or whether they preyed on the skinks directly. Um, all of these pressures kind of added up, and because they had evolved to, you know, like not endure any of those hardships, uh, the, the population really dwindled. Mm-hmm. And you say in the article there was also phosphate mining, which I believe is used in fertilizer. Yes, phosphate mining, again, adds to the disruption, you know, some tree clearing, some land um, disruption, and pre all of this disruption, the forest skinks were kind of found all over the island, but then with this disruption, I think the initial thoughts were that the forest skinks would be fine because there are other parts of the island that they can kind of live in and and survive in, but um, all of this kind of created an imbalance and the skinks just couldn't, couldn't withstand it. Mm-hmm. And I want to get to back to the Melomis as well. Um, first, again, uh, where is Bramble Cay? Or even what is Bramble Cay? 
Yeah, so a K is any low-lying sandy island that's pretty small and by a reef. And so Bramble K is a very small, low-lying sandy island that kind of exists at the northern tip of the Great Barrier Reef. So this is kind of partway between um, northern Australia and Papua New Guinea. Okay, and you have this this little rodent, the Melimus, um, and I think one of the you know, how I first heard about the Melimus a few years ago was in the news as um, one of the first, if not the first mammals to go extinct where we know that climate change was a major cause. So how did climate change uh, play a role in the extinction of the Bramble K Melimus? Yeah, it's a good question because um, I feel like, especially scientists of all people, they're kind of reticent to label something definitively as, like, this caused this, but I think there's general consensus that the Bramble K. Melimuses did go extinct because of human-caused climate change. Um, And that's because they, the Melimuses lived on this low-lying island, um, and they were there for thousands, if not tens of thousands of years, and they survived for that long in spite of, you know, different weather patterns and and different climate changes throughout those eras. But the rapid decline that happened um, in between, like, the early 20th century and the early 2000s was because of sea level change and also, um, and, and sea level change as a consequence of human-caused climate change. And so what happened is that um, originally Bramble K was covered in vegetation uh, and there were some insects and and the Melimus was basically like the only mammal on the island. But what happened is that as climate change worsened, there was an increase in storm surges. So um, big storms that would kind of sweep over the K and kind of wash um, creatures off the island. So storm surges would come and um, sweep, basically just like flush some of the rodents off of the island and then they would die because they are not particularly great swimmers. And um, and as the sea level changed as well, slowly that um, their little island was kind of encroached upon. And not only is the sea level change kind of detrimental because of, you know, this kind of encroachment on the land, but also it's a concern for the plants, right? There's saltwater intrusion where the the soil, or I don't know if, if soil is the right word because it's a really sandy cay, but all of the vegetation that lives on the sandy cay can't um, withstand so much salt. And so as the saltwater kind of intrudes onto the, onto the land, a lot of the vegetation kind of ends up choking up and dying. And without that vegetation, the Melimuses had a hard time feeding, and then just combine both those factors, just less food, and also these waves are washing them out to sea, and they just also just couldn't withstand all of those pressures. Mm-hmm. So we have here a a lizard and a rodent who have gone extinct in the last few years. Um, the first entry in the series was the Po'o'uli, um, which is a, a bird, a tropical bird in Hawaii. Um, I think it's notable that especially um, your two entries, a lizard and a rodent, aren't necessarily the most 
glamorous species. Um, you know, they aren't the rhino or the panda or the, um, some of the animals that get the most attention for conservation issues. Um, and obviously those larger animals deserve attention for conservation issues. Um, but why do you think, uh, why do you think it's important to, to write about, uh, a lizard and a rodent? Mm-hmm. Yeah, this is a question that I also posed to the researchers I talked to who had worked on these conservation efforts. And, you know, this, the bottom line answer is just that preserving diversity means preserving all diversity, right? No matter whether these animals are cute or cool or interesting or not, you know, this, this forest skink looks fairly plain, but it had a role, a long-standing role, in the ecology of Christmas Island. The Melamises, those Melamises that lived on Bramble Cay, they are an isolated species, they were an isolated species, past tense, they were an isolated species that lived purely only on this tiny little K. And that's, even though these melamuses, these rodents were so kind of plain and maybe they might, I don't know, they might gross some people out because they are rodents and they look kind of rat-like, but, you know, they were this unique species that lived on this very isolated island and that in and of itself should be worth preserving. And, um... The sad part is is that it is true that a lot of conservation efforts and a lot of conservation noise and funding goes towards creatures who are charismatic and iconic and, like, just cool. You know, think of the giant pandas or elephants or whales. You know, people love to talk about and think about these uh, huge species because they are magnificent and awe-inspiring. But, you know, these tiny little species that exist in isolated pockets are also struggling and are arguably more vulnerable because they're they live in such delicate balances uh, in the ecology where they are um, and so preserving species like this preserving species that do go unnoticed is valuable in and of itself because preserving diversity means preserving all diversity mm-hmm. and yeah i think it's also not a coincidence that a lot of these are island species um, species that, that are the ones who have gone extinct already because there's not as much, you know, A, they're not used to outsiders in the same way that a mainland species might be. And B, there's nowhere to go when the, you know, when the seas come rising, uh, or when the ecosystem starts changing. Exactly. Yeah. Islands are such fascinating places to go to when you want to look at, um, diversity and in ecology, but, yeah, like you said, like the the double edge to that is that you you have very limited space and you have nowhere to go and it's very isolated and so you just find yourself kind of cornered. Mm-hmm. So one thing we know about the last skink is that we know who it was. They had identified a, a specific, um, I guess I should say, the last Christmas island forest skink. Um, his name was Gump. Uh, scientists had interacted with him. And one of the scientists you quote, uh, John Wojnarski, um, who's a conservation biologist, he he says in the in the obituary, you're looking at the, that last individual, knowing that when the individual will die, as it inevitably would, that it would be the end of that long evolutionary history. It's a scar on our conscience. Um, and... So I, I guess I sort of have two questions coming off this. The first is, 
just what was it like to talk to all these scientists and maybe this is applies to the other environmental reporting you've done in your career, but especially with this project of talking with scientists who worked with species who are no longer here, um, like what was their, what was their emotional attitude toward the, toward the issue or did they keep it relatively scientific or, um, yeah, just what insight did you have into, into them? Hmm. I think all around, there's definitely a feeling of frustration and also just general discontentedness with how a lot of these cases are handled. Because I think that in in both of these cases, with the skink and with the melamis, there were people documenting the decline of these species and telling policymakers and telling governments and organizations that we need to do something about this now. But the thing is, is that policy kind of moves slowly. Science moves slowly, but policy also moves slowly. And when the two are working together to try to save this timely, to save a species in a timely manner, these two slow processes can kind of get in each other's way. And so policymakers would be like, oh, well, what are, what's the evidence? And what are the plans? And what can we, and what, what do you propose? And then scientists had to go back and and you know document whatever data that they could and then come back to the policymakers and say here's what we have will you please let us start this captive breeding program and then the, that policy making decision then had to go through all of the all of their various regulatory phases or um you know debates and and cycles and circles of reports and and deba- and um of reports and just trying to come to to formulate a, a game plan, basically. And all of this is time-consuming. And so I think the frustration is that when these processes take such a long time, it's the thing that you lose out on, the, the loser in this whole situation, is the species that you're trying to save. And especially with the Bramble K. Melamuses, there there were so many opportunities where they where they felt like they could have been saved like really for both the skinks and the melamuses i think the consensus is that they could have been saved there could have been capture pro- breeding programs put in place but things just didn't happen fast enough and it comes down to um political will um, but also attention you know like we like we previously mentioned about how charismatic species kind of get the most attention if if people were willing to make more noise and be more proactive to fight for these lesser known species there would there would possibly be more political will and therefore a faster timeline to get these strategies on track to save these species before it's too late and a lot of citizen scientists and a lot of community members especially for the bramble came melamuses where the melamuses were um had had like aboriginal importance and um for for Torres Strait Islanders there are people who do care but getting that and translating that into action that requires funding and like government approval like all of that is just so laborious and I think that the general sense um, among scientists was that it's a shame and it's frustrating and it's something that can be changed Mm -hmm. and I think in the 
some of the tone of your answer, you maybe already answered this, but my follow-up was going to be if the scientists are feeling frustrated and that it's a shame, you know, what was your experience of, of reporting it and how did you feel being being the one to write this obituary of a species that'll never be around again? Hmm. Yeah, it it is quite um it is quite saddening for sure. And I I, a lot of the questions, um, a lot of the times when I reported, uh, when I report things like this, I'll ask them whether or not they've been to the place or whether they've in- actually encountered the species that um, that they worked with. And, um, you know, Natalie Waller, uh, who I interviewed for the Bramble K. Melamus obituary, she said that she had been to Bramble K, but she had not, she never got to see a live Melamus. Hmm. And uh, John Warnarski, he managed to see some skinks, but and um, and he made it out to Christmas Island, and um, so he was able to kind of give me some firsthand accounts. But just in reporting um, and talking to these scientists, it's it's interesting because literally this is this is the time when we go from this binary this binary state, whether or not the species exists or whether the species does not exist. And, you know, just talking the contrast between John Wynarski, who managed to encounter a live forest skink versus Natalie Waller, who never got to see a live Bramble K. Melamus, that, that, and you can see the loss just in talking to those two scientists and just seeing the difference in how, you know, one man, one remembers the animal and it's no longer here. And one is lamenting because she never got to see the animal that she studied. And and that was just, I don't know, it's just um, really regretful and really saddening. Mm-hmm. Um, just two more questions for you. Mm-hmm. Um, first, I think, okay, so first you mentioned that, um, you know, there were people who were citizen scientists and others who were fighting for the melamis and, and the skink while they were alive. Um, and I think for people today who do want to, you know, fight for endangered species or, um, how, you know, how do we find out about what animals are threatened before they're, you know, some people are probably finding out about the forest skink and the, Bramble K. Melamis for the first time today after they're already gone. And how how could uh, people find out about this maybe before, you know, before it's too late and, and sort of what, I mean, I know as a journalist and I'm a journalist too, like we don't always have a complete answer of this, but just from your experience reporting on these issues, like what would you, where would you point people who, who want to kind of get in on the, on the side of an issue where, you're helping an animal before it goes extinct. Hmm. That is, uh, that's an interesting question. And I'm not sure that I have a great answer for that. I think it's also tricky because, you know, I'm not going to say that, you know, find, look up the list of the most <laughs> vulnerable right. species and go there and help, you know, cause that's not, that's not what, um, that's not necessarily going to be a productive, uh, productive action. But I guess, um, I guess maybe the most useful thing is to be is to be mindful, I guess, about um, things that you participate in. And what I mean by that is that if there are, if you look up your area of where you live and you see that um, maybe like a certain type of tree 
uh, is is endangered. Like there there are ways to get involved locally, but it's I guess it's all contingent upon what is happening in your neighborhood and in your area. But you know if if for example there's some um, if if you discover that there's some controversy with a certain type of tree in a park that that's near you, then what you can do is your level of engagement can can be up to you. But what you can possibly get involved with local organizations. Um, also, there are um, advocacy groups everywhere um, for different species, and um, whether that's flora or fauna, and helping can be can come in the form of like fundraising it can come in the form of like going on trips to maybe document uh where species exist um but i don't know if i have any other specific advice beyond that no i think that is i yeah i think that's an excellent place to start i don't know if for such a big issue like this you know there is a super specific way to tell everyone what to do um so yeah i think that's very helpful and then lastly, you know, one of the things that John Wynarski said is all of these species have a right to exist. Um, and I think that that is, um, you know, that's a sentiment that's been expressed by, by past uh, guests on, on this podcast um, that I think is shared at least semi-widely through parts of the environmental movement. Um, and earlier you, you sort of talked about why it's worth writing obituaries of these species, but I'm just curious, you know, not just in your personal, um, yeah, like in your personal view, not talking about what other people should think or writing a philosophy paper or something, but just personally, like, why do you, what makes you care about the decline of these species? Mm. You know, it's it's interesting because throughout history, extinctions have always happened naturally. But the thing is, is that in our current age, we're seeing extinctions happening at a, at a rate that is far beyond what would ever happen in a naturally occurring global ecosystem. Ha- you know, ha- had humans not, you know, decimated <laughs> the climate in, in the way that we are and have been. And so I think that's really what is the, that's the reason to care and to notice and to pay attention is because when you see the data of the species that are declining now, I think it's impossible to not care because we are, if we are the causes of the extinctions of so many species, the logical next answer is so what can we do about it? And the first thing to start to, that we can start to do to do about this is pay attention. And writing about this and researching it and you know putting things like this out into the world is part of that first step. It's just like, how, how do we get more people to just pay attention? We can't force people to care, but if you can get the information to their eyes and, and you know try to bring it into their purview in the easiest way possible, in the gentlest way, gentlest way possible, that, that's a good first step. Mm-hmm. Well, thank you so much uh, for helping bring this to the attention of the rest of us. Uh, and is there anything else you'd like to add? Um, just that, you know, extinctions don't happen, even though these both of these species declined super quickly, it was by no means overnight. Like when we say this happened super quickly, this is on the order of decades. 
And so when we pay attention to species decline, we have time. We have the ability to do things. It's just a matter of gathering that political will and gathering that social will as well. Um, so yeah, there's time to there's time to intervene. <laughs> cool. Well, that's a good note to end on. And uh, Hannah Co, thanks so much for coming on the show. Yeah, thank you so much for having me. That was Hannah Co, the author of two recent obituaries in the Guardian for extinct species. The Christmas Island Forest Skink, and the Bramble K. Melomus. For more on that last question about why we should even care about species loss, I recommend scrolling all the way down on your podcast app to my very first episode, an interview with the wildlife journalist Emma Maris that touches on some of those issues. If you enjoy this episode, I would appreciate any help in spreading the word, whether that's sharing on social media or sending to a friend, And if you're still listening, I'd like to invite you again to sign up for my free weekly newsletter, um, where you'll get new episodes of the podcast and updates uh, on the podcast and book club, as well as a link to the best article I read each week. Um, And also, if you're still listening, I'd like to invite you again to support this podcast on Patreon, which is a a monthly monetary support, um, and the only way currently this podcast makes any money, um, and that will give you early access to episodes Um, the ability to ask me questions about climate or animal issues or books or anything else. Um, And then depending on what level of support you commit to, uh, there might be other perks as well, including membership in the Storytelling Animals Book Club. Um, My next episode was with David M. Peña Guzman about his new book, When Animals Dream, The Hidden World of Animal Consciousness. Uh, I've already done the interview. It was a lot of fun and a lot of fascinating subjects. Um, So if you support the podcast on Patreon with your early access, you should get access to that episode within a day or two. Um, And then if you sign up uh, for the newsletter, uh, you'll get it emailed to you next Tuesday, which is when it comes out publicly. So everyone else, you can find it next Tuesday or follow the podcast on social media or uh, sorry, follow me on social media or follow the podcast on your listening app uh, to yeah get an update next Tuesday as well. That's all for now, and thanks for listening.